Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Over the weekend, the world lost one of the legendary racing drivers, Sterling Moss, a driver commonly described as the best never to win the world championship, but who also represented far more than that. A true superstar who transcended motorsport and whose loss has resonated today, almost 60 years since his top line career ended. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to pay tribute to Sir Sterling Moss are Mark Hughes and Richard Williams. Well, Mark, just to start off, what springs instantly to mind when you think of, of Sterling Moss? Um, on many things, but I, I think visually, I think of him in his pale blue Dunlop overalls and the white peak cap open face helmet. Um, he's reclined, super relaxed stance behind the wheel, the casual wave of thanks as he laps someone. Everything just looked just so graceful and natural. There's pictures of him showing Jim Clark how to water ski, and he looks like an athlete. He's got he's hold of the rack with one hand and just, just sort of directing Jim. He just looks so poised. And in life, he was approachable and cheery. But um, decades ago, I read the autobiography he did all but my life, and it was um, largely completed just before his accident at Goodwood. And what was fascinating about the man in those pages that merged in those pages that contrasted with the the sterling annu which was you know a long time post um his career was um incredible self-belief behind that natural grace as he he gives a quote to the biographer that really stopped me in my tracks and when i read it and it said i firmly believe that if i devoted my whole life to it i could eventually walk on water now, that was him in his sort of competitive pomp, but it illustrates that th- this wasn't an ordinary mortal. It was something, there was something psychologically different that marked him out even from other competitors. And it, um, that's the, that quote is, is the thing that um, is, I, I think of when I, when I think of Sterling Moss. Yeah, and you wouldn't put it past him to have been able to achieve that with uh, with how, uh, how how brilliant he was in his racing career. And uh, Richard, well, thanks very much for for joining us. Of course, uh, you're a celebrated author of motorsport history, most recently with the excellent work on the life of Dick Seaman, A Race with Love and Death. But you're also a specialist in Moss's era, so I'd, I'd recommend your book, The Last Great Road Race, to everyone, which tells the story of the, the 1957 Pescara Grand Prix, which, of course, Moss won. So, so what, does, what does Sterling Moss mean to you? Well, I think of being a small boy in the 1950s when I began to read about Sterling Moss uh, in the pages of the the magazine I took every week called The Eagle, the boys' magazine. Um, and he was there with other great sports, British sports stars of the time like Dennis Compton and Stanley Matthews and Reg Harris, the cyclist. But to me, he stood he stood above those. There was something very glamorous 
about him, I think, because he raced abroad. Um, he was he was he was a very patriotic man, and you know we were all patriotic in those days, as certainly as small boys. And the idea of him going to the continent to race against the Ferraris and Maseratis and people like Fangio was very exotic and exciting. Um, and he seemed to do it all with such elegance and class and chivalry and sportsmanship. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I met him later on over the years and he never let me down. He never betrayed that ideal in any way. So he was a kind of perfect hero, really. I think from my perspective, for some reason, it, it's not it's not anything quite so evocative, but just that number, 212 of race wins in his career. He's the only driver who I happen to have off the top of my head total career race wins. I don't know why that, that got seared on me, but I, I presume it was a number I must have encountered um, when I was uh, when I was younger and obviously reading about Muslim history. So, uh, and, and that kind of underpinned his, uh, his, his brilliance. Why do we think Sterling Moss is so resonant? His last race of his uh, of his serious career, shall we, shall we say, was in early 1962. So it's almost 60 years since since he was competing at the top level, and and yet he still mourned as if he was competing five years ago, and everyone remembers it. So it's it's amazing that somebody from that era can be so relevant. Why do you, why do you think that is, Mark? I think um, sort of it. it carries on from Richard's point actually the the the, the stature that he carried um, at a, a crucial time in in history and in in this country um you the master of this exotic and dangerous art that had previously just been the preserve of demigods from faraway lands because it, this was all happening at a time when this country was just emerging really as a motor racing force on the international stage for the first time in the 50s and I think because of that, because of the times, it would be impossible now to cast as big a shadow as that. No sport now would seem so impossibly glamorous when the world is so much smaller and everything else is so much bigger. And I think he carried that stature so almost frozen in time for the rest of his life. And I think it, I think it's that. I think it's not just that he was a genius of a driver. We've had a few of those, and they're all deservedly legends. But he's he's beyond even that because of his the, the place he holds in the public's affection, particularly in this country. And I guess that makes him, you know, more than just a racing hero. That's that's what makes him a, a national hero, doesn't it, Richard? He's got that that place at the centre of a British life in that era that's that's carried over for for decades since. Yes, um, very much so. Also, I think we cared about him because his career had so many ups and downs, some of which were self-inflicted, um, like his, his uh, for a long time, his refusal to drive uh, foreign cars. You know, he was like Dick Seaman before the war. He was, he was very keen that Britain should, should uh, produce a race-winning Grand Prix car, which led him early in his career to drive a lot of no-opers, like the Cooper Alta and the uh, HWM and the G-Type ERA, before he finally got his hands on a, a Maserati. Um, and I think people loved that about him. His, his, you know, when he had his terrible accidents, like the one at, um, at Spa in 1960, when he broke vertebrae and, you know, all sorts of bones all over himself and was back racing inside two months. People adored that. They saw something really brave and, uh, you know, and a fondness for competing against the odds. And it was the sort of time when that kind of thing uh, made a big impact, like the ascent of Everest, for instance, you know, people doing things that had never been done, beating the odds. Um, he, he, the, People really, really felt an attachment to him. Yes, I think it's important to to stress to to people just how uh, how non-British Grand Prix racing was uh, when Moss was was rising up. Obviously, we'd had very occasional successes with uh, with drivers, but this was before the the UK really became the the centre of uh, certainly Grand Prix racing. It was a very uh, Italian and German uh, and French endeavour uh, prior to that. But we should also say, Mark. 
we've seen from all the tributes that that emerged there's so many within motorsport some people who knew him some people who say racing drivers who maybe met him briefly but didn't really know him but he seemed to leave an impact on on everyone whether it's uh you know a young driver in junior single seaters today or somebody who was closer to being a contemporary or somebody who will have grown up watching him it's amazing to have that universality yeah and i think um he became a, a brand before it was um before before that was a thing before he became um associated with um the sport and and with the, the deeds and in person he he he's, he's, he carried that off and he was exactly as you'd imagined him to be and so he was uh, you know post career um his profession was just being Sterling Moss, and that—that uh, that was, he, he continued that, um, you know, throughout his life. He was—he was always um, accessible. He was always in the public eye. So he was always um, being quoted. If something had happened in current motorsport, it would be very normal for to see a quote from Sterling on it. So he remained in the public eye, and I think everybody still. Um, knew what he stood for, even if even those that didn't have a detailed knowledge of his career knew knew what he what it what he was about. One of the differences between him and Mike Hawthorne and Peter Collins and Tony Brooks, who were his very talented British contemporaries, was that he was very good at presenting himself always. Um, as Mark said, you know, he, he went about the business of being Sterling Moss, but he did it without being egocentric or overbearing in any way uh, but you know he was always the one who'd be in the adverts for cigarettes or you know uh, hair cream or something um and he'd be on this is your life or you know he'd be on television quite a lot uh and you know he was in the phone book after his career ended you know if you wanted to ring him up and get a quote from him you just looked in the phone book and there was his name and number and he would answer the phone and he would give you know give you a quote and always and be pleasant and interesting with it so he was he was great at that and i i do think that's apart from his you know unearthly skill um and great courage and all those things i think that's another reason why he he rose above all his contemporaries and and remained there well, let's talk a little bit about his uh, his initial rise because he wasn't somebody who came from kind of an obvious motor racing aristocratic, if you like, background or pseudo aristocratic. He was from a from a you know a, I guess a middle class family is the is the way to look at it. But the way he made himself a professional racing driver was just through just sheer brilliance, wasn't it, uh, Mark? I mean, he was one of the sort of the first star of, of Formula 3 of the 500s uh, that he was tremendously successful in. And, and just that sheer ability behind the wheel is is what got him to, to become a, a professional driver. Yes. I mean, there was a little bit of um, dabbling in the sport. He's, he's, I think his mum had competed in trials. Um, his father had raced at Brooklyn's nothing once at uh, Indianapolis, but they, it wasn't a professional. Um, but there was a, definitely a competitive element in the family. Um, his, his sister Pat was um, a trials rider um, and a very good one. Um, but yeah, the outstanding thing—he was just dripping with talent, and uh, he could he could do anything with a car. You know, anything the car demanded, he would find its secrets and just perform because he was Sterling Moss. He was a virtuoso. Um, and it's it's interesting that as the demands, uh, the, the specific demands of the driver changed over the course of his career, he was uniformly brilliant. Others uh, were very good in the sort of 2.5 litre era, didn't um, necessarily continue that form into the 1.5 litre and, and vice versa. There was some that came up in the 1.5 litre that, that didn't look anything special before. And... The differentiator was in the two and a half liter formula, which ran until uh, 1960, from 54 to 60. They, those cars had more power than grip, and the differentiator was the drift, just being able to hold the car in balance on the throttle and at, at a high drift angle. But when F1 went to one and a half liter in 61, suddenly there were these tiny little engines in increasingly sophisticated chassis, so they now had more grip than power. And the driving secret changed. The crucial differentiating part moved back earlier into the corner. And it became about who could best get that direction change, make the whole car's 
set change early into the corner so you get on, on the gas well before the apex. It's about, it would be called rotation in modern terms. Um, pivoting the car around the outer front tire but not, not, allowing, not allowing it to slide too much. So it was about exploiting that outer front tire to the maximum. Moss was the absolute master of both those disciplines and he bridged that gap effortlessly. Well, he certainly had that uh, that good good feel. One of the things he talked about was because he was uh, he did a lot of horse riding equestrian uh, when he was younger, and that's that's kind of all about balance, isn't it? And, and feel. So obviously, it was kind of dialed into him quite young. And of course, he was driving. I think from about the age of nine, he was he was uh, charging around in, in an Austin, wasn't he? So I guess that was really kind of developed in him those those skills very very young. And often, when those skills are absorbed young. They can you can apply them when you're older. So I guess it was people always talk about natural talent, but it, it did come from somewhere, didn't it, Richard? Yes, and the family was certainly comfortably off. He and his sister Pat, you know, were able to to have horses and ride them competitively in show jumping from from a very early age. And as Mark said, it was a, a naturally competitive family. So he got encouragement. You know, there was nobody say, saying to him, you know, oh, darling, don't do that. It's too dangerous. Um, you know, his his mum and dad both w- went to, you know, his his motor races with him. His his father, you know, in, in the in, in the prime of Sterling's career, would travel with him to the races. Um, and uh, I think that was that was pretty important. Um, you know, he he was never made to feel he was doing something wrong or illicit. Um, so when, um, for instance, uh, when it was decided that the British cars he was he was driving weren't good enough, it was his father and his manager Ken Gregory who went to Maserati and bought a 250F, you know, which enabled him to be competitive at the highest level. They spent five and a half thousand pounds on it, which Sterling ruefully said later was actually his money, um, but they took the initiative, you know, and that was his dad doing that. So. You know, though it was a it was a good setting in which to become a Grand Prix driver. He he, he wasn't fighting against adversity in in, in that way, um, but he could put all his competitive instincts into fighting on the track. It is interesting how he broke through because there's always talk about the fact he wasn't entirely embraced by the motor racing establishments uh, initially. Um, obviously, there were suggestions of a bit of anti-Semitism around, which I guess wouldn't have been un- unusual uh, at that time, but. I guess the point where he really breaks through is with that 1950 TT success in Tommy Wisdom's Jaguar, isn't it? That gets him into the Jaguar Works program, who'd initially not been interested uh, in him. And, and it just all goes from there, doesn't it? That's the point where he really breaks through as a, as a professional driver. Yeah, he'd been turned down for a works drive in that race by the by the Jaguar team on the grounds that he was too young and inexperienced. Actually, the race was on the day before his 21st birthday. And Tommy Wisdom, the very experienced uh, racing journalist and racer, um, said, OK, well, drive my XK120. Um, and Moss won beating the works cars, um, which was really a big, a big marker in his career. And after that, of course, the, the works team invited him to drive for them at Le Mans and elsewhere, and the, the big races. And that, that, was a, that was a big step for him. It's one of those things you often see with with great drivers, isn't it? They get they they kind of make an opportunity. It's kind of a cometh the hour, cometh the man type thing. Obviously, wet conditions in that race, and he it was just a point where his just irresistible ability couldn't help but catapult him onto the uh, on onto the, the the world stage almost. But and Mark, I guess that that kind of tells us this this was a driver of unusual ability. He had everything, both the skills behind the wheel and the off track uh, initiative, shall we say, to to really make something of himself yeah i'm i'm sure he him and his and maybe his father as well we're we're, we're hustling a little bit behind it behind the scenes to make it all happen for him um but as you say when he when he got the opportunity it, it you know there was no there was never any question um and that that jaguar um situation is sort of paralleled later on um in formula one when it, at mercedes when he was in consideration for a drive in '54, when he'd yet really to establish himself in Grand Prix, and it was he, he tested for them, tested very impressively, but um, it was suggested that he was maybe not quite experienced enough yet, and should do a season, which is when they they got the 250F that Richard was talking about, 
And in the Italian Grand Prix that year, he was leading Mercedes and leading Ascari's Ferrari. Um, so, it, you know, again, just underlining in red that you know, his natural place was at the top team. Yeah, of course, which led to that uh, Mercedes opportunity. But again, an example of a driver who is in a position to try and grab the attention is able to, uh, to deliver. I think he won the Gold Cup in the Maserati, didn't he? And obviously this is a, a, a driver who sees himself and this is where the self-confidence is he clearly sees himself as being someone capable of lining up alongside uh Juan Manuel Fangio at Mercedes as he did in 1955 and although he went into that with uh and conducted himself with humility he knew that Fangio was uh was the, was the man in that team you get the feeling that there was underlying all that that feeling that he knew he he deserved uh t- t- to be there and I guess yeah the self-belief again isn't it Richard? Yes. Um, in fact, he'd had such confidence that uh, before the 1954 season, uh, he and his manager had applied to Mercedes. Uh, they knew Mercedes were coming back, and they'd say, you know, and he said, "Can I, can I have a seat in the team?" And they said, and they said, "No, and that's go and get some more experience." That's when he got the Maserati and proved, you know, to their satisfaction that that he was good enough for a seat in 1955, and that was a very important year for him because he spent most of the season following very closely in um, in Fangio's wheel tracks and watching, you know, the master of, of, of racecraft at work at very close quarters. Uh, and he was, as you said, you know, he was always very modest about his standing compared with with Fangio. Um, he won the, the British Grand Prix at, at Aintree, which was historically very significant. Um, no one will ever know whether Fangio made a very diplomatic and very civilized and charming gesture by allowing him to win the race by a matter of feet sitting behind him in a reversal of the usual order but nevertheless you know he won it and he um, certainly proved himself to be Fangio's equal in in sports cars for Mercedes that season too winning the Mille Miglia and the Talda Florio with Peter Collins. Well that's the interesting thing with the, the comparison with Fangio's always being made and Obviously, it's not the most fair comparison in that that was Fangio, kind of at his his peak and with a lot of experience, whereas uh, Moss was still on the on the up. But but it is interesting, isn't it, that comparison? Because in sports cars, it was equal to Fangio, even even the better actually. You you would argue, and that fifty five season, um, he was extremely strong in in sports cars. If there was a, a drivers' championship for a world championship for sports cars, he'd have won it. Mercedes obviously won the what was a manufacturers' championship, but. Again, you have that that famous Mia Mia victory is is kind of the the foundation of the a big part of the legend with that wonderful uh, the Dennis Jenkinson Motorsports uh, article he was co driving, and that's just a big part of the legend and also the the preparation that that a driver like that was able to have. Obviously, it's a thousand mile race between Rome and Brescia, so you can't learn the circuit, but you can approach it uh, almost with a with a rallying mentality with uh, with pace notes. And sure enough, he won uh, an absolutely stunningly difficult race with with relative ease yeah i think you have to in in sports cars he was absolutely incomparable at that time uh, i think he was definitely faster than fangio fangio's sterling had asked fangio sometime post-career i think why was it you you weren't as quick in sports cars as in formula one and fangio replied he likes to be able to see the wheels and he just he didn't feel um, at ease if he couldn't if, if he couldn't see the wheels and the one time that um, uh, the, the Mercedes entered um, the the Formula One streamliner um, at a, a road circuit at Silverstone he was he was a little bit dis- at, at sea so the, there might have been something in that um, but uh, Sterling didn't it didn't bother didn't bother him either way and like you say we you know we're not comparing like with like with Fangio at his peak and Moss in his second full season of F1 and even then there was very little in it and I was once interviewing him about Monaco 61 another of his great races but I asked if he believed he was performing to that 61 level when he was at Mercedes and he re- replied no I, I, he didn't believe he was and that he believed he just steadily got better and better and that, that's how it looks when he analyzes his career I, I believe the best stuff was towards the end yeah I guess as you would expect uh, uh, ultimately but I guess that was where, in the public consciousness, he was really starting to build up because this was the, the great Fangio who was, had already won several world championships by that time. So he was the the master. But here was Moss kind of in his wheel tracks and doing far better than 
what anyone else has done alongside uh, Fangio at Mercedes. Obviously, they had Carl Kling, um, Hans Hermann was around. You know, good drivers, but not in the in the same class. Whereas Moss actually showed that he could be uh, of that kind of uh, of that kind of caliber. And I guess it's a it's a shame that everything that happened with Mercedes in '55, the Le Mans disaster, which also potentially cost Moss uh, uh, a Le Mans victory, and Mercedes quite rightly withdrew from that race. Um, it's interesting to imagine what might have happened had Mercedes continued and whether Moss might have eventually uh, been able to transcend Fangio as he saves on that big upward curve. It's one of those, uh, one of the many what ifs, I guess, about uh, about Sterling Moss's uh, Moss's career. But, but he kind of ended up going down after Mercedes, the the back to driving British cars, um, Van Wall and later uh, Rob Walker, and these this is kind of the the peak years for him, I guess. Uh, uh, you would argue when he was really at his best, but Richard, do you think that that particularly the the success with with Van Wall and the, and the British Grand Prix was the the kind of peak in terms of the the, the British perspective of, of Sterling Moss? In that finally, here was a guy who won a won the uh, Grand Prix in a British car in difficult circumstances. So really, just finally showed that the, that the, this country had had transitioned into becoming a a top line place for Grand Prix racing. Yes, it was uh, it was a very significant season. Um, Moss won the British Grand Prix at Aintree in in fifty seven uh, with sharing a car with Tony Brooks. Moss's own Van Wall had broken down, and Brooks wasn't Brooks had had a big accident at, at Le Mans um, and wasn't feeling great. So when Moss retired, he took over Brooks's car. Um, at, and resumed the race in ninth place and eventually won with with the aid of a bit of luck um, because Jean Berra and Mike Hawthorne, who were first and second, both retired late in the race. Nevertheless, it was um, it was a fantastic triumph. But then I think more significant were, were the next two races he, he won, which were both in Italy, um, one at Pescara, uh, which had been slotted into the calendar because of several races had been cancelled after the Suez crisis. Um, and then at Monza, where he took on the Italian teams, the full strength of the Ferrari and Maserati teams, and beat them soundly. And that, I think, set the seal on the rise of uh, British teams and drivers in, in Grand Prix racing. And after that, with Cooper and Lotus uh, entered by Rob Walker, you know, he was able to lead the the confirmation of, of that new British supremacy. And of course, Mark, that, that did matter, didn't it? Because having a driver winning for Mercedes or, or Maserati at the top levels he did in, in, in 56 mattered. But doing it in doing it in a van wall, uh, British racing green was was just a, a huge achievement and something that with all the struggles that British Grand Prix cars had, had had something that people had almost started to give up hope of yeah and you, th- those those wins really broke the dam and um, the, the, the statistically it was it happened at entry but yeah the, the particularly the Pescara race was and that was one one of his most um, astonishing performances and he, he, he beat Fangio's Maserati by well over two minutes. Um, it was just a, you know, fantastic uh, display of that. That combination was the, the fastest around. It wasn't just a, um, a result based upon uh, the the misfortune of others. It was it was here here that here was a British car, British driver dominating and and um, beating the best in the world, and uh, th- that went on in of course into fifty eight when. Van Wall won the inaugural Constructors' Championship um, with Moss and Tony Brooks on the driving strength. And Moss just lost out, infamously just lost out to Mike Hawthorne, who was driving for Ferrari at the time, uh, by a single point. Um, so even even though a Ferrari driver won the title, there was a British driver there as well. So it was a British constructor winning the inaugural championship and a, a British driver in the Ferrari winning the Drivers' World Championship. So it really underlined that um, the country had arrived as a as a force, and with with mention of of, Pesca, of Pescara fifty seven, Richard, as you are the author of the Last Road Race, which is a, a fascinating book about that, I'm obliged to ask you a bit more about it because it was a 
you know, a phenomenal event. And it, both uh, in itself, obviously, the Copper Cherbo Pescara had been going on for for a while. It was already a famous race. This was its one appearance as a World Championship event, but it's also that kind of crucial time, wasn't it? Which is uh, obviously the, the the way the book comes together, not just bringing together a remarkable race, but the important stories of uh, particularly the Britons in uh, in Grand Prix racing. Can you j- just tell us a little bit about that about that race and why why it's so important for for Grand Prix racing and for for Moss as well, of course, as the winner. Well, it always fascinated me because it was a race and a circuit that wasn't on the regular World Championship calendar. It was a 15-mile circuit, the longest that's ever been used in the, in the Formula One World Championship. Um, it began on the seafront uh, in Pescara, which is on the Adriatic coast, um, sort of on the other side of Italy from Rome, kind of directly across. Um, So the race began in front of temporary grandstands and temporary pits on the seafront and then took a right turn up into the hills and the cars raced through on perfectly ordinary roads through mountain villages uh, before setting back off down a very fast stretch downhill towards the coast again and then a long, long, long straight uh, back to the finish. Very high-speed circuit, very dangerous because of the speeds uh, and because of the complete lack of any sort of safety precautions whatsoever. You know, hardly a straw bale anywhere, never mind anything like arm code barriers or anything at all. Um, the spec, you know, There was no entry fee for spectators because if you lived in the village and the race went through it, you, know, you watched from outside your house or sitting on an earth bank. Um, I loved all that. Uh, I loved the way the drivers got to the race. Um, Sterling and his dad flew to Rome. Uh, Sterling, where they picked up a Fiat 1100 rental car um, and drove across to Pescara, about three and a half hours through the mountains. Um, the Abruzzi. Um, uh, Roy Salvadori and Tony Brooks got there in a, a Hillman Minx, which uh, one of them was road testing for a magazine, autocar, I think. Um, Jack Brabham, who was racing for Cooper, got there by driving the Cooper Transporter from Surbiton to Pescara in the days before any sort of motorways at all. Uh, he drove the car transporter there and back. Um, and I loved all those stories. Life was so different for them. You know, they, they'd get there a few days before the race. They'd all go swimming together. You know, they'd have dinner together, have a good time. They'd check out the course in their rental cars. Um, Bruce Halford, who was racing a Maserati, uh, learned the course by racing his transporter around, or his well, sort of truck rather than a transporter, around the course because he didn't want to risk driving his Maserati in case he broke, broke something and couldn't afford a spare part or couldn't get one. So, you know, it was a different way of going about racing. Um, and uh, I mean, the two facts about that race I love, um, one of which is that by the last couple of laps, uh, when there were only half a dozen cars left, kids would go out and play in the road. Um, between the arrival of the cars, you know, such big gaps, and their parents would listen out for the cars when, when they could hear, a, you know, a Ferrari or a, a van wall coming. You know, they get clear the kids off the road so the cars could go past. And the other one is Jack Brabham ran out of petrol on the last lap, um, was co- co- saw, you know, all the shops and filling stations and everything were closed. He saw a filling station, coasted into it, thought, oh well, I'll wait for the race to end and then I'll get somebody to come and pick me up. But suddenly a bloke jumped out from the filling station office and poured a couple of litres of, of, of petrol into his, well, something or other, petrol into his tank, and off he went to finish the race. So, you know, I love those stories. And Moss's victory, and it seemed heroic in a different kind of way from races on permanent circuits. It's interesting when you look at uh, Moss's career, Mark, the success he had on these types of circuit, winning at Pescara, Famous one at Mia Mia, the Targa Florio, won the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. I think he won the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometres four times, three times Monaco Grand Prix, went out and won there in 500s as well. So on these really challenging tracks with no margin for error, with huge consequences for getting it wrong, he was a guy who consistently achieved, uh, which I guess, again, testament to that self-belief, but also the the precision to be able to perform at that level without making a mistake that, that could be fatal. 
Yeah, it's about how how good you were was amplified in those uh, extreme cir circumstances and that um, belief in how good you were as well. Um, because if you look at the difference back then between a very great driver and a, a good driver, in if you look at the lap times on a, a qualifying grid, it might be second, second and a half or something like that, which in today's F1 would just be, wouldn't, be tolerated you can't be that far off your teammate um but that that was that's because now you can see and push beyond the limits and then come back down to them you didn't have that luxury then you had to uh, drive to your ability and when the consequence wasn't just a a, a trip to the the gravel trap or the arm code but it, it was it, it, possibly to the morgue um, then, then you, you you couldn't you couldn't take uh, liberties in the same way. So the the natural level became the natural order became much more apparent. And of course, during this this period of his career, this is where he really earned that epithet as the greatest driver never to win the world championship. Now, some people rail a bit against that, and obviously the world championship isn't the be all and end all. But I think it actually says something about Moss that he's able to be remembered as one of the absolute all time greats, despite not having that that kind of weight of of numbers of championships he hasn't got Fangio's five world championships but it actually doesn't matter he's still up there in that uh in in that uh that pantheon I mean Richard do you do you actually think that almost perversely not winning a world championship was was always better for the Moss legend than winning say one if he just picked off one of them and hadn't had the, the bad luck that cost him yes uh he always said that he would rather have been known as uh the, the man who who never won the world championship but deserved to rather than just one of several who won it once um you know i, I think the, the the very greatest uh world champions won it more than once um and he didn't want to be numbered among you know the the the, the one-time winners um i think <laughs> clearly he would have loved to have won the world championship and he deserved to win it um and he deserved to win it several times. And perhaps if the accident in 1962 hadn't intervened, that would have come true. Um, but I do think there's, a, there's, you know, it's a special distinction to be accepted as as the greatest of of, of that era after Fangio, uh, and yet not to have, you know, to have been denied the prize very cruelly. That's that's something very poignant, and um, it was. It was uniquely his. Yeah, we should mention 1958 and the Portuguese Grand Prix, of course, shouldn't we, Richard, where Moss uh, helped to exonerate Mike Hawthorne from a disqualification. And then Moss, of course, later in the year, went on to miss the World Championship. But I think it was just a point having saved these points for, for Mike Hawthorne. So that, again, adds to the legend, doesn't it? The, the decency of, of the man. Yes, the closest he came to winning the World Championship was 1958, um, when he and... He and Mike Hawthorne were more or less neck and neck um, through the season. Um, Sterling won more races, but there were the significant incident took place at Oporto in the Portuguese Grand Prix, a race that Sterling won. Um, Hawthorne was was a, a fairly distant second, um, but on the last lap, Hawthorne spun and stalled, the car stalled, and he tried to restart it. Uh, in the direction of the circuit, but that was slightly uphill and couldn't get it going. And Sterling was going past on his lap of honour and stopped and said, look, don't do that. Turn it round and, and start it the other way. Um, and Hawthorne did that, got it started, finished the race in second place, but then was called before the stewards and was disqualified because he'd pushed the car against the direction of the circuit. Sterling voluntarily went to the meeting of the stewards and told them, no, don't disqualify him because, you know, um, he wasn't actually on the track when he push-started it against the direction of, of, of the race. He was actually on the pavement, so he's all right. And the stewards accepted that and restored Hawthorne's six points for coming second, as you got in those days. You got eight for a win, one for a fastest lap, and... Uh, six points for second so a couple of races later the last race of the season um sterling did everything he needed to do won the race got the fastest lap but hawthorne finished uh 
in second place and um, was able to pip him to the title by a single point, um, which, of course, you could trace back to Sterling speaking on his behalf in, in Portugal. So that was a, an example of great sportsmanship, and he never, ever uttered a word of regret about it. In fact, he said, um, you know, perhaps truthfully, that if the positions had been reversed, Hawthorne would have done the same for him, which says a lot about the way people racing drivers went about their business in those days. It wasn't only that. It, also, the, the scoring system that Richard talks about, where you only got, uh, there was only difference of uh, two points between first and second. If they adopted the later um, system that ran for a couple of decades, which was nine points for a win and six for second, Hawthorne, uh, uh, Moss would he comfortably win that 58 title because he had four victories to... Hawthorne's won. Um, so if you applied the same scoring system in 58 as we had subsequently, that would have been Moss's title. Um, in 59, it was only the unreliability of the Colotti gearbox on Rob Walker's privately entered Cooper rather than the, um, the different gearboxes on the works Coopers that cost him that title. Um, his broken back at Spa in 1960 cost him four races in the Lotus. Um, so there's three consecutive titles at least he could have had and as as Richard said if his career hadn't been curtailed who knows how many more there might have been so I don't think that the statistics really um, are worth uh, getting too caught up on yeah, and it's worth noting that when you also have fewer rounds, it's more easy for the the wrong driver to to win, if you want to put it that way. But the uh, it, it's interesting how those just opportunities went there because like the spar accident you mentioned, that was a wheel detached from the car, that wasn't a driver error. Uh, the the unreliability of the gearbox, obviously Sterling Moss wasn't in the position that Jack Brabham was because Jack Brabham had basically uh, modified some Citroen gearboxes for the for the works coopers. So he'd used his uh, his uh, skills to to put in some. Uh, uh, some modifications to it to strengthen it so just all these small little factors but even so during that period um you know just so many so many great wins you're just sort of trying to tick off all the great victories but another one is um argentina mark uh in uh 58 which was a an unlikely an unlikely win but another one that shows a different aspect of uh of moss's skill set yeah i mean that was a, a tactical bluff over over the ferrari maserati teams so it was just a, a converted, uprated Formula 2 Cooper owned by Rob Walker. And it was a late entry to the race because Van Wall, Sterling's contracted team, um, weren't couldn't make it because they hadn't adapted their engines to the new uh, regulation fuel of that year in time. Um, so he was, Sterling had the idea of, of uh, just borrowing Rob Walker's Cooper along with the mechanic Alf, Alf Francis. And being an F2 car, it wasn't uh, the, the F2 races didn't have pit stops in them, unlike the Grand Prix of the time, and so it didn't have um, the the, um, the single spinner on the wheel to to so they could make a quick tire change. It had just f- like a conventional road car, just four bolts. So it, a pit stop was going to take you know three or four minutes. <clears throat> so. Uh, Sterling and Al Francis just came up with the bluff that they're obviously not going to be contenders because they would uh, lose so much time in the pits. But of course, they they didn't make a pit stop. They they just fueled the car up and um, ran very gently early on and just gradually made their way to the front. And by the time uh, it was realised in the Ferrari pits that he actually wasn't stopping and his tyres were down at the canvas, it was too late. And uh, Luigi Musso in second was too far back um, by the time it was realised, and so yeah, it was a, it was a clever win, but it, it it was the was the win that actually brought the walls down in terms of um, the, the British domination of the of the sport. You know, we talked about how in '57 um, with Van Wall it was confirmed Britain's place, but in '58 it was the Britain's way of uh, specialist constructors with. Um, the mid-engine cars and proprietary engines and gearboxes that, that uh, came to dominate the spot for the, well, arguably right until today. Um, that that was what the Cooper win signified. So, yeah, again, another very significant moment in the sport's history and um, the Sterling's there. One of the things I loved about that race in Buenos Aires was that Alf Francis actually put out 
um, fresh wheels and tires on the pit counter to uh, to fool the the Ferraris and Maseratis into into thinking they were definitely going to make a pit stop, uh, and then they never did. And as you say, the the tires were right down to the canvas by the time. Uh, Moss finished the race. There's also the story about Sterling Moss spending lots of time before the race walking around griping about the fact that it took ages to change the wheels and it was going to be a problem. So just <laughs> just putting that uh, that thorough gamesmanship, which I think uh, you see in any uh, in any great driver. But again, this this thing about Moss's great drives. I mean, Richard, I was looking at a piece you wrote uh, on on the Guardian site, picking out his five greatest wins, and that included 58 Argentina. But there's there's just so many to choose from that i imagine squeezing it into five is uh it's not impossible because because all five of those that you picked which the me i mean uh 56 italian grand prix argentina 58 nurburgring thousand kilometers in 59 and then the famous 1961 monaco grand prix you know those are all in most other drivers body of work that would be their comfortably any one of those would be their best race by a by a country mile probably yeah and i it would have been very easy to pick five more uh, very, very easy indeed. You know, another one of the, or possibly two of the Nurburgring thousand Ks, the nineteen fifty Dundrod uh, TT. Also, you know, there are all sorts of races that in which he he proved himself to be, you know, absolutely exceptional. And we should mark talk a little bit more about the relationship with with Rob Walker, obviously the great uh, uh, privateer team successes in in Formula One. Again, never quite won the the world championship, and it was driving for Rob Walker. Of course, his career came to an end. But that that period, um, and I guess uh, Argentina fifty eight prefaced that, um, given it was uh, it was Walker's car, but fifty nine sixty one driving with great success uh, for, for Rob Walker in. Cooper machinery, Lotus machinery, uh, even um, during that period, won the uh, the only Formula One race for four wheel drive car in the in the Ferguson at Alton Park in the uh, in the Gold Cup. But you know that that's one of the the great driver team partnerships and relationships, isn't it? And the fact they could take on the the manufacturers in in that period and the works teams was uh, again another big part of the legend. Yes, and he, I think, after fifty eight, he he sort of cured himself of chasing the 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 title he, he he rather took to the idea of of being the underdog and and proving proving his brilliance regardless of the the circumstances so that that fitted nicely you'd get um rob would um have last last year's cooper or last year's lotus and they'd go against the works cars and it did uh yeah as we say it cost them the the championship to the works coopers in 59 um interesting aside that the the citroen based gearbox that um that jack brabham enjoyed that um gave him the that crucial advantage over sterling um jack had sourced those from a french scrapyard and uh, modified them himself uh, but it just it, the the partnership with um rob uh, was just uh, Perfect gentleman's agreement. There was, they would share prize money, um, but there was, there wasn't a contract as such, and they just that that's how it was. And it was, it was all set to continue into '62, but in partnership with Ferrari. Ferrari had basically offered Sterling Moss the world, um, and said, you know, you can just tell me what you want, give me a list of demands. And uh, Sterling had said, well, he wanted Rob to run a, to run the car. He didn't want to run from the the works. And Ferrari had agreed even to that, so that that's that's how strong that relationship had become between Sterling and um, Rob by then. Well, with mention of that, Richard, we should uh, cast our minds back to earlier in his career and the the Bari incident with with Ferrari that obviously was the reason why Moss never uh, never raced for Ferrari, despite being massively admired by uh, by by Enzo. And obviously, that's a that's a good example of why you don't um, don't put off uh, superstar drivers with your treatment of them, isn't it? <laughs> yes, uh, in 1951, um, Enzo Ferrari had obviously, you know, clocked Sterling's uh, precocious talent, invited him down to uh, down to Bari to the Bari Grand Prix in Puglia to drive one of his cars. It was a non-championship race. It was obviously a good opportunity to give a young driver a try. Um, Sterling and his dad drove all the way down. Um, to Bari, even further than to Pescara, um, a long way from London, and uh, got there 
and they discovered that there was only one Ferrari there and that Ferrari had changed his mind and was uh, uh, given it to Piero Taruffi, a much more experienced driver, of course, who'd, who'd driven for, for Ferrari for some time. Um, and there was no car for Moss. They let him out briefly in it in, in practice, but um, he couldn't race it. Uh, and he was furious, um, and understandably so. Um, he'd been, you know, been treated in a very high-handed uh, way. So he went home, um, vowing never to drive for Ferrari again, and um, always said that he took special pleasure in, in, in beating the Ferraris. But then in uh, between the 1961 and 62 seasons, they had a meeting uh, in Marinello uh, at the Ferrari headquarters, and Ferrari did, as Mark said, offered him um, offered him uh, a Formula One car that uh, Rob Walker's team could paint in their dark blue colours and prepare themselves uh, and run themselves, and also a, a 250 GTO for um, sports car and GT races. Um, that's one of the great unknowns. You know, Sterling crashed and his career finished before that offer became concrete. Uh, having been all conquering pretty much in 1961, the, the Ferrari of the modified 156 of 1962 was actually a bit of a dog. Um, and so who knows what would have happened, whether Sterling would have had another disappointing underdog car or whether Al Francis would have been able to to work a bit of magic on it and turn it in, into the winner that it certainly wasn't in the works hands. So that's, you know, that's a great unknown. Yeah, and of course, what actually happened was his, his career ended uh, in April 62. Uh, big crash at, at Goodwood. I mean, Mark, that's, I mean, that was the ultimate abrupt <laughs> halt to a career, wasn't it? He tried to, to come back briefly. He did drive um, uh, a car, but it's clear he felt he didn't quite have that He'd lost some of that edge and uh, promptly, uh, promptly retired. But it, it's amazing to think that had that accident not happened, he could have. Who knows how long he could have carried on for? If he if he carried on to the same age someone like Jack Brabham did in Grand Prix racing, he could have still been there in the in the early nineteen seventies, uh, age wise. So a lot of Moss's career was was lost to that. It wasn't like it cost a few years. It potentially cost us a, easily a, a decade or more, even more perhaps, of of Moss competing at uh, in, in the front line. Yes, well, he always said he had no intention of stopping, you know, subsequently. He said, had he not had that injury, he would have just kept going. He would have kept going indefinitely as long as he was still quick. And he was only uh, 32 when he had the accident. So, yeah, it's quite conceivable he could have had another decade, at least in him. Um, I, I think he probably would have gone on to to form a partnership with Ferrari as Richard touched on. I don't think the '62 season would have been anything special. I think the cars were outdated by the the Lotus Twenty Five by then. But when you look at the cars that they subsequently came up with in the John Surtees era, if you imagine Moss and those, I, you can imagine them going head to head with Clark um, for the next few years. And I think his stature and the old man's understanding of his level would have focused Ferrari, and I think um, they would have enjoyed a lot of success together. And Maybe as Ferrari was overtaken by the Cosworth DFV technology from 67 onwards and before the Fiat money had arrived, Ferrari was struggling a little bit. Maybe Sterling would have moved on um, at that point, but just imagining them in a Ferrari P4 or a Ferrari 512S sports car, it just it, it, it sends shivers down the spines because it, it would have just been such a, a wonderful combination. Um, but yeah, he always said he he saw himself probably would have retired sometime in the 1970s had injury not intervened. Um, but I mean, given, given the era that we're talking about, that was a a very big presumption, wasn't it? To, if it hadn't, you weren't injured in '62, he could easily have been injured in the subsequent time. Um, he, he couldn't really plan on uh, do much long term career planning in those times. He liked a family atmosphere in a team, which he got at. Uh, Maserati and to some extent at Mercedes and certainly with Rob Walker and that to me puts a bit of a question mark against his relationship with Ferrari the Scuderia Ferrari was always and always has been still is a very political place um, and I'm 
a little bit like John Surtees in that respect. I'm not sure how how Sterling would have got on with that in the long term. Yeah, history does suggest there'd have been a, a falling out. I should take this opportunity to promote your uh, Ferrari book as well, which is another very good read. I'd forgotten to mention that earlier. I'd, uh, at this time of, of lockdown, people have got plenty of time to read, so I'm trying to get as many recommendations uh, <laughs> out, out as possible. Uh, but we should still talk about Moss's post-frontline racing career. Obviously, he was still high profile. He did he did return to race historics regularly. I think it was 2011 was the last time he tried to commit. I think he retired after qualifying for a historic race at the, uh, supporting the Le Mans 24 Hours. And of course, he did do a few bits of contemporary racing. He turned up at Bathurst uh, in the, the 70s, and he he did do a couple of years in the British Touring Car Championship in a, in an Audi. But the game had moved on quite a bit there. But he was just this. It was just. Uh, the, played such a totemic role didn't he in that he was because as we said earlier he was so sort of accessible and like he, he kind of kept that that spirit and that that name alive and for, for people who were, were born long after Moss retired to be able to see him in action I mean I was able to see him racing uh, in historics just fantastic to see this absolute legend not just racing very very occasionally but do, doing turning out relatively regularly in, in historic kit and I guess that says a lot about his his passion for racing doesn't it Richard? Yes, uh, I was lucky enough to see him drive a van wall, not in the 50s, but in 1979 in a kind of demonstration before the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. Um, And to see him at Monza driving that car was just sensational. And uh, I saw him in a Mercedes W196 at um, Melbourne a few years ago at Albert Park, where, of course, in a Maserati, he'd won the Grand Prix that had coincided with the Olympic Games. in 1956 and he he loved doing that he loved showing people himself in in the cars of that era and you know so you feel you know i feel i saw sterling moss in a van wall that's a kind of priceless feeling actually um and he was he was so good at that and you know he had that terrible accident um when he was 80 years old when he got into the empty lift shaft at his home in Mayfair and fell 30 feet, broke his ankles, damaged vertebrae. And uh, within six months, I saw him at the Goodwood Revival racing his little Oscar sports car, you know, not just driving it, racing it. Um, At that age, having done that to himself, extraordinary powers of of recovery as we'd seen throughout his career. So that kind of post-career, the long post-career of Sterling Moss was an extraordinary thing. And gave pleasure to an enormous number of people yeah and certainly shows his uh, enormous enormous toughness so I mean, mark when we re- reflect on uh, on moss moss's career we've we've mentioned that the greatest driver ever to win the world championship obviously we talked about his sports car success he was good in saloon cars as well had a little bit of rallying success so he's as well as being one of the great grand prix drivers one of the great sports car racers he's also one of the greatest versatile racing drivers as well he he's one of those people who just ticks all the boxes doesn't he he was quick in absolutely everything and also took the game on off track as we talked about in terms of his professionalism and his attitude it, he was just one of those defining bar raising drivers wasn't he yeah his talent translated in every type of car basically in every every discipline within the sport um i think probably helped that um the, the cars were more basic and the tires were more basic back then so the technique was maybe less specialized than it is today but it, it, it so that just allowed you a, a clearer window on on that genius really um like a, a few years ago when fernando alonso first tried an lmp1 le mans car he was significantly adrift of the pace of the regulars like anthony davison and sebastian buemi but he got, he got there eventually but when even someone of that level and renowned adaptability of alonso can't just climb in a car and be fast it tells you how much more specialized it's become um and i, I think Back then, the talent could be seen crystal clear in a way it can't with more sophisticated machinery. Uh, and Richard, your kind of final reflection, I mean, he is one of those handful of, of all-time greats, isn't he? That's There's not even really a debate to be had there. No, there isn't. Um, you know, you wouldn't like to have to judge between uh, Nivellari and Fangio and Moss and Clark and whoever you pick from the you know Senna from the from the more recent eras but um he just in our eyes you know to 
to British fans particularly. Um, he just stood above, stood for something special, for some qualities that we still see in racing drivers, that we still look for in racing drivers today. Yeah, and it's just that the, the reaction to, to his loss uh, has uh, just, just shown that 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 still resonates with with everyone today and i guess the final he just had to reflect just just what a what an incredible life to have had so much success to have had a long life and to have been healthy to relatively late in his life obviously the last few years were were tough but just a just an amazing story somebody who touched so many people those who knew him well speak very highly of him but also those who never met him and only saw him from afar had a had a real hero to to admire so uh I guess Mark from that perspective it's you just had to reflect on a on a, on a well played innings I guess yes on a on a uh, life well lived um I think the best way of thinking about it is he and he and the world got to enjoy each other for a very long time and I think that's um you know a nice consoling thought yeah, well, by his own admission, he certainly uh, enjoyed himself on and off track, and uh, and why not? When you're when you're that good, you absolutely uh, deserve to. Uh, well, we hope we've at least done some justice to the legend that is Sterling Moss. We could have talked for for four hours, uh, ten hours about about, uh, about the guy. Many many races of uh, just amazing amazing level of performance, a genuine all time uh, great. Uh, but I do recommend again read Richard Williams's books. They are uh, always uh, excellent. The Last Road Race, Ferrari. Uh, and the, uh, the Dick Seaman book, uh, Race with Love and uh, Death, uh, absolutely outstanding. And do head to therace.com. Uh, you'll be able to read Mark Hughes's appreciation of Sterling Moss on there, as well as all the latest on the world of motorsport. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and also check out our other podcasts, including our retro podcast, Bring Back V10s. So stay home, stay safe, and join us next time. <laughs>